Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. My guest today is Dr Hendrik Snyders, Head of the Department of History at the National Museum in Bloemfontein in South Africa. Henrik is the author of numerous works on the history of South Africa and especially the social history of sport and in particular rugby. His latest book is called Blitzbox, Rugby Sevens in South Africa, a history 1904 to 2019. But today he's going to talk about the long and often torturous relationship between rugby league and South Africa. In 2015, he co-authored the excellent book Tries and Conversions, South African Rugby League Players, with Peter Lush, and he's also written two fascinating articles on attempts to establish rugby league in South Africa in the 1960s and the 1990s. So, welcome to the podcast, Hendrik. Thank you, Tony. Pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on at last. Um, So, I guess that most people listening to this will be familiar with at least some of the great South African rugby league stars of the 1960s, such as Tom van Vollenhoven and Trevor Lake. But there's a lot more to the story, isn't there? In the late 1950s, for example, there was quite a serious effort to get rugby league in South Africa up and running, wasn't there? Indeed indeed so. As far back as 1953, a gentleman called Ludwig Jaffet, who was a member of the Transvaal National Sports Club, came across the idea of introducing rugby league to South Africa because he believed it would have been a natural fit within the South African context. So he engaged the relevant bodies, the international board, as well as the the English um, authorities, with the view to obtain some information about crowds, supports uh, tendencies, uh, but also the type of support that the game generally generated um, within the British context and to see to what extent it, it, it could be transferred to the South African context. Being a businessman first and foremost, this was not a missionary undertaking. It was clearly an entrepreneurial initiative aimed at making money because Jaffet and his national sport club was known for uh, the hosting of professional wrestling matches, professional boxing. So they were in the money-making business. So what then took place over a period of four years, he engaged the British authorities, the rugby league international authorities with the view to get some of the top uh, nations, Britain and France in particular, to come and play in South Africa uh, to demonstrate the game with a view to institutionalize it. There was, however, a couple of problems. First and foremost, most South African venues and playing fields resort under municipalities, does not belong to rugby clubs on community level. Although stadiums, especially some of the larger ones, resorted under some of the rugby unions, the the association uh, and federations. So hosting rugby league in South Africa in the 1950s was at best a risky undertaking. Because it was a time just after the 48th election and the institutionalization of apartheid 
that the National Party who won the election on the ticket of apartheid, they were still in the process of building their base. And within their base were a number of prominent personalities with links to rugby. For example, John Foster, who later became the president, were closely connected with the uh, Park Rugby Club in Port Elizabeth. And so there was a number of personalities amongst, in addition, amongst the first parliamentarians selected after the apartheid election, if I can call that, of 48, was Paul Ruas, the first Springbok captain. He became part of the first generation of National Party members of parliament who would drive the apartheid agenda and legislative program uh, post-48. And the rollout of apartheid laws actually started in the 1950s. And one of the key issues of the apartheid government was the right to represent South Africa in the international sports arena would be reserved for whites in line with their policy platform and in line with their campaign platform. So the National Party is in charge, apartheid is their policy, and blacks would be excluded from national teams forthwith, officially. As a result of that, 1952 saw the start of a mass civil disobedience program led by black opposition parties called the Defiance of Unjust Laws Campaigns. And that increased the fear of white South Africa against the black danger. Because masses and thousands of black people stood up against the laws that were implemented breaking it willfully with the, uh, with the express purpose of being arrested uh, in order to make the system unworkable. So after the 52 defiance campaign, which was followed by massive government repression, the National Party in that same year and, and white society celebrated the Van Riebeek Festival in 52 and celebrated 300 years of European civilization in South Africa, which also engendered resistance from black communities, including black rugby players. So collectively, all of these issues contributed to a situation where there is fear of the black mass, because they were by far in the majority population numbers-wise, and the very tentative hold that the National Party was still having on the levers of government. So it becomes a contest for the National Party to ensure that they build the strongest possible power base. On the sports community, what, uh, what, what in the context of the black sports community in turn, by 1955, they decided they need to do something about the exclusion of blacks of, of, from national uh, teams. So under a Port Elizabeth activist called, called Dennis Brutus, they formed the Committee for International Recognition, an organization whose task it was 
to promote the recognition of the right of black athletes to represent South Africa as well. So politics and sport meet, um, come together within the confines of the committee for the recognition of blacks in the international arena. With the establishment of this body, government hit back, detain leaders, bully the activists involved in the anti-apartheid groupings, and that left us with a massive, massive situation. But on the other hand, that period was also the high point of white rugby in South Africa. Because between 1906 and the 1952-53 tour of the British island, the Springboks have cleared the decks. They have, it's also uh, within the history of white rugby known as the golden era of Springbok rugby, 1906 to 52-53. So South African rugby was at an absolute high point. The Springboks have defeated everyone of the rugby playing nation. So it left white players with very little other incentive other than to play Curry Cup rugby. And within the space, Ludwig Jaffet came with this rugby league idea. The reaction of some of the administrators within the SA Rugby Football Board was immediate and of a severe nature. Now, some of the intended venue for this exhibition series was Durban, Cape Town, Springs, and Johannesburg. The Springs venue was the headquarters of the Eastern Transvaal Rugby Union. The Eastern Transvaal Rugby Union's vice president, uh, vice president was also a city council, and they therefore refused to avail facilities for such a match. In Cape Town, there was also resistance because it was also the era of amateur rugby. They were trying their utmost for a long time to discourage any form of professional sport. In fact, the words of the Transvaal president was, it is immoral, you take your rugby league, your professional rugby league, which is a pub, nothing more than a publicity stunt, you take it and you take it away from here. On top of it, he added, this is an English game. There is only one thing more dangerous than a rugby league professional um, game, and that is when English people dominate Afrikaners in the context of rugby. So there was a language issue, there was a cultural issue, and to a certain extent, it almost seems as in the mind of the Eastern Transvaal president, which may be generalized to some of the other presidents as well, was this view that we are repeating and refighting the Anglo-Boer War. So the Eastern Transvaal was opposed. Seemingly, there was also some ambiguity within the context of Johannesburg, where though the city council of Joburg was more English, more pro uh, the promotion of professional sports, they was also influenced by certain amongst their number 
who felt that we cannot have a situation where amateur sport resulted in some venues being called amateur venues that becomes off limits for amateur sports. So when they were approached, didn't provide Jaffet with the preferred venue that he would have. But he was granted an alternative one. In Durban, things went a little better. They were able to secure Durban. They were able to secure as an alternative to Springs Benoni. And then there was also a battle to get access to the East London venue. To the extent that Danny Craven, who was a major opponent of rugby league, were called by the Border Rugby Union to come and speak to the East London City Council about the danger of allowing rugby league being played on any venue in the, in the city. And Danny Craven, in his submission to the East London Council, said to the council, you must do everything in your power to prevent a situation like in Huddersfield in 1895. This is bad for amateur sport. This is bad for the values associated with amateur sport. It's immoral to play rugby and get paid for that. You shouldn't allow this game to happen. But like in Durban, Jaffet won the support of the council. And a key ally to the council was the East London Publicity Association, who saw in this exhibition games an opportunity to attract positive advertising to the city. And this London venue was granted. Durban was granted. Benoni was granted. Cape Town was cancelled. Long and short of it is, Jafet was able to host his event. No, I was going to say, was there any, any suggestion that rugby league might be seen as a non-racial sport? Um Certainly, there was in in Britain there, were, there, there was uh, an objection by one of the rugby league magazines, Rugby League Gazette, to establishing rugby league in South Africa while there was still apartheid. It was one of the early supporters of uh, of a boycott. But I've I've never seen, and obviously you'll know better than I do. I, I've never seen anything um, from the people trying to establish rugby league in South Africa that they that there was any possibility that it could be a non racial sport open to all races. Well, interestingly. Already with the formation of the South African Coloured Rugby Football Board in 1897, they adopted the rules of the English Rugby Football Union and included a clause within their constitution that they would fight against professionalism. So almost from its founding, the the control body for for black rugby being the South African Colored Football Rugby Football Board, were almost anti-rugby league. The South African African Rugby Football Board that was previously known as the South African Bantu Rugby Football Board, established in 1985, particularly for the so-called African group, they similarly supported the amateur principle. So... By the time that Jaffet's initiative came around, they were also anti-rugby league. And between 52 and 57, coincidentally, both the Colored Rugby Football Board and the African or Bantu Football uh, Rugby Football Board 
were involved in attempts to build a relationship with the International Rugby Football Board with the view to secure matches against Fiji and the Maoris. So in their approach to rugby business, they were quite comfortable of accommodating and fitting themselves within the existing racial order. We would strike up a relationship. And and one of the, the projects that the black rugby bodies were involved with was to see whether it was possible to build an alternative association with Japan, for example, and Fiji, with the view that all the so-called black nations were able to play internationally against each other. So So it's almost like a form of international apartheid. To a certain extent, yes. Uh, And that was a curious thing. Because within the within their base community, there is this clamor for non-racialism, for equal inclusion, and for recognition of black athletes. Yet its controlling bodies, its coordinating bodies for this particular key sports, were quite comfortable of practicing their own extensions of apartheid. Almost like, okay, we cannot be included within the existing white nation test setup. But of course, there's Fiji, there's the Maoris, there is Japan. Let, let's try to see whether we can put something together there. So by the 1950s, there were a lot of displeasure about apartheid, about separate amenities, uh, exclusion from, from certain uh, facilities. But as far as I could ascertain, There were no objection, for example, against uh, the exclusion of Boston and Freeman as part of the exhibition series. There were no evidence, as far as I could find, about any objection to being allowed into separate enclosures for the Durban match uh, that Great Britain and France, for example, played. Because crowds were racially segregated, weren't they? Absolutely. Uh, the, the, whole, the whole series was, was, was a white initiative. It was a white series and it fitted nicely within the larger framework of racial separation, um, apartheid and uh, separate amenities, for example. It's, I've got to say, it's, it's one of the most shameful episodes in British rugby league history that when Billy Boston was left behind in Australia after the 1957 Rugby League World Cup, when the teams, Britain and France, went to South Africa to play those exhibition matches. And although it was kind of covered over at the time, everybody knew that uh, Billy Boston had been left behind, to, in a sense, to appease apartheid. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the, the, the South African Coloured Board and the South African Bantu board that was later in 59 re, uh, rebaptized as the South African African Rugby Football Board, they were initially far from, red, uh, far from radical. They were conservative, moderate. The African board only changed its stance in 59 under a new president when, when they 
first dropped the racial tag Bantu from their name became the African Rugby Football Board. The Colored Rugby Football Board only dropped the racial tag from its own name in 1966, years after. So this is how uneven their, their approach towards fighting apartheid initially was. They were mostly conservative up to, up to uh, even the late 60s. And with the, with the founding and the split within the ranks of the colored board in 59 to give birth to the South African Rugby Football Federation, where Green Vigo comes from, even at that point, the difference were not ideological. The difference was personalities that clashed. So for a long time, the, the, ideology, the ideological position of the founding fathers of black sport, of black rugby in particular, were long abandoned by the 1950s and 60s by their successors. Uh, and, and, and that's actually a, a curious uh, situation. The long and short of it is the exhibition series took place despite opposition from the rugby board of Craven despite their connivance with uh, compliant anti-rugby league uh, municipal councils with control over venues, and despite the absence of any significant Black um, embracing or um, support for the, the rugby league initiative. In fact, shortly thereafter, the South African Colored Board, Rugby Color, uh, Rugby the Colored Rugby Football Board, under which Ulam Abed and uh, a number of other rugby league players that went over to the UK were in the forefront of slapping a ban on those guys that, that ventured into rugby league. They were amongst the first, although they were under no compulsion to do so, because they weren't affiliate members of the international body. The colored board, the, the Bantu or African board never had international rugby football board affiliation. So technically, they were under no compulsion to ban rugby league players. But you find that after Gulam, Winti Pantle, etc., went over to the UK in the early 60s, their bodies were the first to impose a ban on them. So voluntary compliance with the, the anti-rugby league uh, regime indicates that they were well aware of the state of rugby politics at the time, but they were also then well aware about their actions weren't um, radical, that they were actually very compliant with regards to the existing situation. It's interesting that although there was obviously an incredible amount of opposition to rugby league, by the time you get to the late 1950s and early 60s, as you've said, and you've written about in in the fantastic book uh, you've done with Peter Lush, there are dozens of South African players, both white and non-white, coming to Britain to play rugby league. So in a sense, the the propaganda against rugby league seems to have backfired uh, and the talk about professionalism and, uh, you know, potential opportunities opening in, in, uh, in rugby league. 
actually made it attractive to some players. Yeah, I I, I think that there are two main drivers for 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 that phenomenon. Obviously, the first driver would be the need for recognition, uh, more so for black than than white players. I mean, if 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 we look at the founding history of the black rugby bodies, for example, the coloured board on its founding in 1897 in clause 25 of the constitution stated it emphatically that they are against any form of discrimination based on color, creed, religion, or anything. So it means that from, from the onset, they wanted to be outgoing, interacting, and visionary organizations that wants to form part of a larger world. And during the last part of the 19th century, there were numerous examples of Black South Africans or Black colonialists that moved overseas to carve for themselves a career in the one or the other sport, for example. We had, for example, the case of Joe Pluto Brown, who left the Cape Colony in the 1880s, deserted and go and live in Australia and establish themselves as a notable prize fighter in Australia, in Britain, in Canada, and in America. Became the first black South African or any South African for the first South African for that matter to fought in an official world championship fight in 1899. He was followed not long after by the boxer Andrew Jeffter. Also, in 1899, we had this tour of a group of black soccer players from the Free State under Joseph Twy, who played more than 50 games in the British Isles and in Europe before any white soccer team has done that. And then we had, during the later part of the 19th, uh, also around about 1890 uh, or early 20th century up to 1912, we had the case of Richard Mazimang, who became the captain of, of Taunton uh, in, in British Rugby Union. So these were powerful examples. And it became an attraction for their Black counterparts of, their, of finding their own place within the international arena. 1948. Weightlifter Ron Eland is excluded from the South African Olympic team for London because of his color. He found sanction and support from the British weightlifting authorities, and he gets included into the British Olympic team for the Olympics. He competed against his own country. That was a powerful incentive to other South Africans of similar ability that for them to get recognition, they need to leave the country. So in the 1960s, the first wave went. Among them, cricketers like Gulam Abed, rugby players like Gulam Abed, Dick Abed, his brother, Kuti uh, Williams, cricketer, Ensland Lambulu, Antile Piccoli, all went. Recognition is important. But there's also the economic driver, which is more of an incentive to white players. I've looked at 
a sample of the players that left rugby union to play rugby league. For example, there were 23 players in the 1963 rugby league Springbok side. Of them, 83% were from non-white collar occupations. 83%. Of the 23 in the 63 rugby league Springbok side, for example, there were only one farmer, one engineer, one assistant manager, and one personnel officer. Those were the white collar guys. Otherwise, there were six clerks, one draftsman, seven tradesmen, three salesmen, and one operator. So it gives you a sense that the economic position of so many black and white rugby union players that leaves and that left for rugby league was spurred by the economic conditions. It was a class thing as well. So if 23 white players, of which 83% are non-owners of any business, are not in white-collar occupations, see it fit to leave for money to go and play rugby league, how much more was the case for black players who were mostly laborers and sometimes semi-skilled labor? Again, one of the things that, that is extraordinary in some ways is that by the time we get to the early to mid-60s, there's quite a cohort of South African players of all races playing in England. And you get a situation where, I think, in 1965 uh, at Bradford, you get a um, a white South African player, a black South African player, and what was known at the time as a coloured South African player, playing for the same Bradford team, which would have been something that would have been absolutely unthinkable uh, taking place in South Africa at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And... And maybe what, what, what was a factor is that the, I think the common denominator in, in, in all of those cases are the fact that they came from the Cape province. Abed came from, from, from Cape Town. Uh, Barnes comes from a little town called Elam in, in, in the Western Cape province, 90 minutes outside of Cape Town. Enceland Lambulu comes from the, 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 the African township called Langa, uh, just outside of the city centre of Cape Town. So uh, the rugby culture in Cape Town was far different. But the great irony, as you rightly point out, the fact that they were only able to, to don the same jersey, represent the same club, played in the same competition as equals, was only able outside of this country. So, so yeah, I, I think the context then determines the nature of relationships, but it also makes, makes it probably more easier, a lot more easier in a foreign situation like in the UK for them to have close interaction and play as teammates. I mean, it's also, there's also a standing and a known tradition in Cape Town that Black Cape Town, for a long time, was some of the key supporters at Newlands of their white counterparts. Of course, the situation changed after the 1960s and, and into the 1970s, especially after 1973, 
when the ideological position of black sport became much more pronounced and, and when the issue of non-collaboration and double standards were, were strictly enforced by organizations like the South African Council on Sport uh, and others. So yeah, it, 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 it might have been a curiosity against the backdrop of apartheid, but there were also other factors that made it possible in fact, that also made it possible that that relationship within the foreign context doesn't become adversarial, doesn't become conflicting and cause new problems for the host club. Because I can, I can just imagine if Colin Greenwood, Gulam Abed, David Barnes and Ensland Lambulu was infused with, with radical ideologies or extreme racism on the other side, it would have been very, very problematic for Bradford Northern to keep them out of, out of harm's way and from, away from each other. But the fact that they seemingly came from the Cape province, where the, the interaction within the rugby communities were far more fluid, it, it maybe account for, for the relative success that these players had within the Bradford uh, context. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to, um, we, in a sense, we've only scratched the surface, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring things to a halt now because we're, we're way over time. But um, we're going to have to do this again because there's a lot of, um, well, A, this has been absolutely fascinating, but also there's a lot of other questions to bring the story up to the present day and perhaps go back uh, further into the past to talk about some of the South Africans who came over to play in the 1920s. But for, for the time being, I'll call half time on this and say, Thanks very much, Hendrik. This is incredibly enlightening and absolutely fascinating. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure. If listeners want to find out more about Hendrik's research, uh, you'll be able to find links to some of his works on my website, which is www.rugbyreloaded.com, where you can also find the complete archive of episodes about the history of rugby and the other football codes. So once again, thanks, Hendrik. And until next month, thanks very much for listening.